Welcome to Kermit Uncut, where I'm very glad to be joined by filmmaker and author Alex Cox. This is Alex's new book, Alex Cox's introduction to film, A Director's Perspective. Alex, at the beginning of this book, there's a very sort of helpful, you know, introduction to what everybody does, what the cinematographer does, how lenses work, the size of lenses. But underneath this, there is a kind of overthrowing of the critics' favourite auteur theory, that what you demonstrate in the first sort of, you know, 50 pages of the book is anyone who thinks that a director makes a film doesn't know anything about filmmaking. Well, it can be the director. It can be. I mean, the director can be um, the auteur, the author of a film. But the first film that I give as an example of, of, of a film to look at, to, to really demonstrate the crew position mm. and all of that, is Wizard of Oz. Yes. And Wizard of Oz had, what, like six directors or something like that? So, I mean, which one is the auteur? None of them is the auteur. The studio is the auteur of Wizard of Oz. Mm. I, as a director, like to think of the director as being the author of the film, but obviously it's not always the case. But do you think of yourself as an auteur? Because towards the very end of the book, you say one of the greatest pieces of advice you can get, you can give is team up. Surround oh, yourself with, you know... For sure. I mean, there is this ludicrous book by Robert Rodriguez called Rebel Without a Crew. And mm. what a stupid title, because of course the guy had a crew. <laughs> Even on his first film, that, that one they made in Mexico, he had an enormous crew and like, yeah. special effects and bullet hits and all this stuff going on. It's still a team effort. You can't make a film by yourself. Welcome back to Rotten Rewind. I'm Max Rue. And typically we would have a little a little pun from what we do here on the podcast, but I'm rolling I'm rolling solo today, so we're gonna go punless. I don't really know what a good pun for this would be either, because I don't know if it would be for the movies that critics didn't want to colonize or did colonize. Maybe didn't. They passed on colonizing. They said you actually have nothing for us here. Uh, we're at the end of our second month of Autor Misfires, and we're going to be talking about a film that I have been itching to discuss since the very beginning of the podcast. I think it's the definition of an auteur misfire in the classical studio sense in that it nearly cost its director their career. In some ways, it did cost him his career. Today, we will be discussing Alex Cox's Walker, a film that I think would have been radical, a radical studio-funded project really in any decade, but felt especially exciting coming at the tail end of the Reagan 80s. And to help me unpack Cox's um, kind of anti, say anti-biopic satire, is a very talented writer, a podcast regular. You know her, Olivia Wilkie. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Of course. I'm so I'm so glad that we could we could do this one. I um, was trying to figure out a place to put it in here because some of the directors I think that we're covering are like, I guess, you know, more in the canon of like top tier auteurs. Right. And Alex Cox is a guy who I think given if this movie would have turned out differently, maybe, or if it would have had a proper release, uh, maybe could have gone on to be mentioned, I think, in the upper echelon of auteur directors. Oh, yeah. Repo Man was immediately like a, I guess, what is it? Not a sleeper hit, but cult. It was a cult hit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you always forget it was released by Universal, as was this movie. I mean, people loved Repo Man. And this was the immediately followed. And well, he did sit in Nancy in between. That's right. Okay. You're right. He did sit in Nancy at at MGM. So he had like three studio movies for his first few. But this, I mean, he... 
was never going to do anything else after this. I mean, the studios made sure he was totally blacklisted. Yeah. Repo Man was, I think that was the first one of his that I, that I saw probably like a lot of people. I saw it a few years ago. They were screening it at a theater in LA and I'd never seen it before. And it was one of those, like, where have you been all my life moments where I was like, how have I not seen this until now? Right. But you're a Repo Man fan, right? I am not actually. You're a not. Fan. Oh wow! I am, Fuck. I, okay. I don't dis. I don't dislike it. I haven't seen it in a in a long, long time, and I need to rewatch it after discovering Walker. But I I was bored with it. Interesting. Okay. But this is coming from like what like twenty year old me. So okay. I don't know if that's that valid. Change. I haven't seen Sid and Nancy, but I you know I ride for Walker super hard. Yeah. I cannot get through Sid and Nancy. I'm going to say I've tried to watch it three really? times. Okay. I tried to watch it again this last week. I don't know what it is about that movie. I think it's maybe just like I find them so annoying that <laughs> I'm just like, I don't care. See that. I've um, always been a Johnny Rotten girl. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to watch it in that like I, I like Cox and I like Gary Oldman when he was on drugs. I think he was a better <laughs> actor. So it's always fun to yeah. see uh, a good Gary Oldman performance. But yeah, I cannot get through that fucking movie. I don't know what it is. Have you seen Straight to Hell or Highway Patrolman? I have not. I really want to. I caught up with those two because I'd never seen them. Straight to Hell is like made the same year as Walker. It's with Joe Strummer and Courtney Love. And it's not good. You know, it's worth watching. I did really like Highway Patrol Man, though. I would say to get into Alex Cox a little bit more. I mean, so for people that are listening that aren't as familiar with him, Alex Cox is a director predominantly known for his 80s output with his trifecta of Criterion approved cult classics. He started off with Repo Man in 1984 before moving on to a more conventional biopic with Sid and Nancy. I think that was the other thing about it. It feels like really conventional. Conventional. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then before finally arriving back at Universal with the film we'll be discussing today, Walker. And as we'll get to later in the episode, Walker was such a critical and financial bomb that it essentially blacklisted Cox from any studio funded film again. He would get hired in the late 90s to direct Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, again by Universal. It's amazing that they just keep going back to him um, <laughs> only to be fired and then unfortunately replaced by terry gilliam even though that's probably one of terry gilliam's better movies oh, i'm not a terry gilliam fan so i am not a fan i really actually don't like terry gilliam at all Same. Uh, i haven't seen fear and loathing since it's been a long time i liked it when i was a teenager would love to see alex cox's version of it otherwise cox's filmography has been made up of, of mostly obscure kind of often hard to find titles like three businessmen or highway patrolman which i was just discussing which i believe is on canopy but was I think barely released in the US. So pretty much the very definition of an overtly political radical filmmaker operating in a studio environment Cox is definitely a rare breed of director and one who I would say is sorely missed in today's very anonymous streaming landscape. I read an interview with him for Walker when it was released on Blu-ray recently. They asked him, "Do you think the movie would have fared better today?" And he's like, "No, I don't think so at all because I think that actually like things have gotten more conservative." the hold that studios have on filmmakers and the control of what's released is a lot stronger in the 80s even though it was such an obviously conservative era it really was a time where you look back at the movies being made then especially in the studio system and you know look i don't know there was a lot of cocaine going around maybe that uh, helped <laughs> get some pretty wild projects financed but like i know what he's saying though i i can't even imagine a world where this movie gets made today when did you first see walker 
I I really recently, like last year, and I didn't really know anything going into it. Right. Immediately was like, oh, whoa. You know, it it establishes its tone like pretty early on as, I don't want to say like stream of consciousness, but it has a lot of these elements that feel out of place, obviously with its anachronism and, and, um, you know, jazzy score. And yeah, I was just like immediately drawn to it. Like, holy shit i'm surprised it got made it feels like a movie that would be hard to make in any era i think that cox is spot on with that like especially now this probably would not fare at all i mean it barely got got made with universal pulling funding and the nicaraguan government stepping in to fund the rest of the film which is yeah. i've never heard of that he had a, i think the producer that he had worked with before lorenzo o'brien but then he brought in ed pressman who was like a pretty prolific producer at that time Mm -hmm. and he was the one who kind of brought it to universal i guess at the time they had uh robert richardson tarantino's dp he was attached to shoot it but they were having a hard time locking down financing someone basically went to robert richardson and was like i want you to work on this oliver stone movie and he was like well i'm kind of attached to walker right now and the producer was like walkers that's not gonna happen for a long time if at all like don't worry about it just just come and do this and then alex cox found out that the producer who said that to him was his producer ed pressman Oh, was basically God. going behind his back and doing that, which is awesome. That's insane. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there's a, a book that my girlfriend got me a few years ago that I picked up for this as I hadn't read it. And it was it's Alex Cox's like autobiography, basically, where he goes into the productions of all of his films. So just reading about like everything that he went through for this movie is pretty amazing. And I would recommend it to anybody who's like a writer, filmmaker, anybody who's interested in making movies, because it's it's a really sobering, honest look at what it takes to make a movie. And I think that comes through in the final product, just through the tone. It's a very angry movie. It was filmed in Nicaragua during the Contra war. It's just extremely radical. I can't really think of a movie that has come out since that's studio backed that is so determined to have a very radical political stance in what's going on currently at this moment. And that's pretty much what Walker was. The unthinkable has happened. The United States has invaded Nicaragua. An American has declared himself president. Be prepared to sacrifice yourself for freedom, for justice, for religious conviction. Stand up and fight! Walker. It is the God-given right of the American people to dominate the Western Hemisphere. It is the fate of America. Prize democracy, Walker. More than my own life. No one will remember Walker. A film by Alex Cox. You all might think that there'll be a day when America will leave Nicaragua alone, but I'm here to tell you that that day will never happen. I swear that we will never abandon the cause of Nicaragua. Ed Harris, Peter Boyle, and Marley Matlin. Walker. William Walker's a pretty obscure figure in history at this point. Like at the time, it's amazing because at the time he was like one of the most popular, well-known men in America. And now he's just kind of forgotten. So Walker is the story of William Walker, who in the film is played just fucking incredibly by Ed Harris. One of our few probably 
outspoken, like genuine leftist celebrities that we have left. One of the men that refused to stand for Elia Kazan at the Oscars, famously him and Nick Nolte and Amy Madigan, his wife. Love that. But William Walker was a Tennessee-born soldier and a firm believer in, in Manifest Destiny, as we all should be. Really? I mean, come on. Um, after his fiance dies of cholera, his fiance is played by uh, Marley Mallon. Great. Incredible performance. Yeah, yeah. Great. Very short performance, but so mm-hmm. memorable. So after she dies, his dreams of settling down and running a newspaper are tarnished, and he goes and does what any delusional white man in 1853 would do. He colonizes Nicaragua. It's what we all do when we're going through our midlife crises. I need to colonize a brown country <laughs> immediately. Financed by a sleazy millionaire named Cornelius Vanderbilt, played just so uh, grossly by Peter Boyle, covered in flies almost. His characters basically presented like a Fairly Brothers character in, in his one scene, pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. Walker and his um, band of mercenaries, they head south to Nicaragua under the guise of bringing democracy to the country. And anybody with even a vague understanding of American history will know how the rest of this turns out. The twist in Cox's depiction of history, though, is that the film is packed with anachronisms referencing modern American culture, things like Marlboro, Coca-Cola, People Magazine, and of course, Reagan's invasion of Nicaragua more than 100 years after Walker's brief reign are all integrated into the movie. Something that really upset a lot of critics and and people at Universal at the time of its release. You know, I tried to think when I when I was watching it again this time, because I watched it for the first time a few years ago. And I kept wondering now, because I think I have definitely like a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of movies now that are trying to be about right now. It's so easy to make just, I think, like the cringiest movie imaginable. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that I know has to do with the times that we're living in and the fact that we're living online. So everything has already kind of been filtered through. Yeah, exactly. It's like even a show like Saturday Night Live, which, you know, has never really been like amazing, is truly just like, what is that show even for anymore? Like by the time they get to the end of the week, everything's been so recycled and gone through on social media that there's no way to be relevant anymore. But yeah, I think it's it's really hard to make a movie about uh, the world that we live in right now. So I wonder, you know, like at the time, like was Walker so, because it's, it's definitely not a subtle movie. It's a very blunt, angry oh, yeah. film. It's very on the nose, but in a way that doesn't bother me at all, that I think is because of what he's saying and doing through, you know, on a studio's dime is, is amazing. But I wonder if at the time people looked at it and kind of felt what maybe we would feel today watching something about this moment and thinking like, oh, this is like so fucking easy. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And like reading some of the critical response, like, oh, this is so silly. Like this is so over the top was some of the immediate reaction to it. And it is... It's still all of those things, maybe more so at that time. But I also feel like what other work of art, I guess, was tackling like U.S. involvement in Nicaragua and, and the course, Contra yeah. War. It's like if you're going to make something about the here and now, I think making it blunt and making it angry and and in those two things, having it be extremely genuine kind of comes together and and uplifts it and and has made it hold up better as time goes on probably than people at that time thought it's a difficult movie (laughs) it's not like oh okay i immediately know where this is going i mean the, the film is very it keeps you on your toes tonally because it is both so angry and and saying something so bluntly and can be so humorous and silly also very sad and very dramatic and melodramatic i mean there there are just like little things going on in the film the set design and the art direction are incredible like no the set design is amazing i noticed like for the first time when he comes back from that first battle that it opens with the fan is 
held by this rock that has like a frowny face like drawn on it that's going up and down behind the that's judge's table oh yes that's like, right yes i do i do know what you're talking about yeah, dumb yeah. little silly stuff like that yeah. and like the ship once once they get off the ship and are on nicaraguan ground for the first time like the ship is like burning in the background you know chaos basically yeah. this time especially something i noticed was that Walker has this total like transformation and coming, I guess, unglued after the death of Marley Matlin from cholera. I mean, he opens the movie with a man telling him basically like, we're going to go down in history, like we're going to be remembered. And he, he tells one of his, his first lines is to that that guy saying, don't be so silly, man. And it's interesting, like coming from that being the start of the movie and then where he ends up oh, just unreal. It's like the only thing holding him back from just being like a full blown monster is is his deaf wife. Yeah. Home, who's basically like the angel on his shoulder that's like, please don't do that. Please don't right. do that. And I love that early on when they have an argument, I love that the other people who basically don't know how to address her in the room just yell at her right because they think that being deaf just means you can hear if you yell in their face they're having like an argument and it's it's ed harris and marley matlin um and she brings up slavery and he says helen you know i just des- i despise slavery i despise it yeah um and then one of my favorite lines later on in the movie is when they're trying to appease southern politicians back in the u.s and and ed harris makes an announcement he says men i have found a solution to our problems slavery yeah <laughs> incredible all morals off the table at that point to keep this country conquered and in his reign specifically yeah, and you keep it's just like whatever whatever morals you've created for yourself you can just keep kind of like pushing that line in the sand back further and further yeah there's a more like traditional dramatic way to portray william walker i think that He's smart and that he also knows that William Walker's a really obscure figure at this point in time. So who the fuck is going to go watch a movie about this guy? <laughs> like, there's really nothing. And if you make a really serious drama about it, that's also not going to probably bring anybody in. So it's like, you know, yeah. make a fucking comedy out of this. I think you wrote a, it on, on Letterboxd maybe, but it is almost like what if like the Zucker brothers did a fucking political biopic right right i did write something about that i think also the humor in it and kind of the absurdity creating this absurdity out of his life is kind of an acknowledgement that it doesn't care for the historical aspects it cares for the legacy that you have exactly it's the legacy you know we're going to kind of mutate these histories into a tone that mimics the legacy that you're leaving it doesn't matter the historical accuracies because we don't give a fuck about that because fuck you you're going down in history for colonizing yeah. a country that also, didn't most of these types of movies even like the more dead serious ones are not interested in historical accuracy like yeah any film like this that comes out there's always going to be somebody who's like well this is actually what really happened here or like this is right how they took creative license but this is like i think yeah it's even commenting on the idea of taking creative license with these types of movies it's so interesting to think about like Universal being so upset with this movie when they got it because it's just like you looked at the script you knew you saw (laughs) Repo Man you were already mad about Repo Man Right. So like, why do you keep going back to this guy? I I never understand that when studios are like, what have you done? (laughs) 
And it's something like this. It's like, it's one thing if it's like one of these like fucking like superhero movies today because they storyboarding it. So they're like, how did you deviate from the plan? And right. This up? But we talked about Nicholas Rogue last week and, and how the financiers for bad timing were like, once they saw the movie, they were like, you have to take our name off of this. We don't oh want to be God. involved in this. This movie's disgusting. <laughs> and it's just like, you read the script. You knew what you were financing. You knew what you were getting yourself into. Yeah. <laughs> oh, another, another fun fact about the script is it was edited by the vice president of Nicaragua. That's right. <laughs> which um, is just amazing. Yeah. So it's written by Rudy Wurlitzer, who was brought on by Alex Cox after Cox went down to Nicaragua and he had seen, it was a building, I believe in Granada. There was like a sign that said that it was like an art, you know, a historical landmark that was like, this is the only building that William Walker did not destroy in his reign in the two years that he was there. And Alex Cox was like, who the fuck is William Walker? And then like immediately when he went back to the US, like did a deep dive on William Walker, was reading all these books and was like, holy shit, this absolute <laughs> fucking loser. <laughs> and obviously it was so really uh, relevant to what was going on at the time. It's funny because you can't really imagine, I know even Alex Cox said like, I can't imagine anyone but but Ed Harris playing this part. But at the time they wanted to get, you know, somewhat of a name to play the part, the part just given how difficult the material was. And I guess for a while it was going to be Sean Penn. Oh, because I guess Sean Penn does look like the real William Walker. But okay. Sean Penn wouldn't read for the part. They had to just give it to him. Oh my God. So there was like a few actors <laughs> they went to. They were just like, they're not going to read. But Alex Cox was like, oh, I need them to read because I don't, I need to make sure. Yeah. Um, the tone is so bizarre that. Yeah. You make sure that they, they understand what they're doing with that character. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. I can't even imagine the version of this movie that Sean Penn makes today. That, uh... <laughs> yeah. And then Ed Harris is fucking notoriously just like a really rad fucking person. I know he's like very serious, but he is a very fucking cool, very intelligent guy. And he was up in Seattle and he was like, I'll read for it. I don't care. I like it. Let me read for it. Make sure you like me. And then he met with him and he read for it. And he said, I can't imagine anybody else doing this. And I can't either. He's so perfect for this part. And I think you need an actor as serious as Ed Harris to betray this because yeah. the moment you even wink at the audience with this character, it just completely falls apart. Who better than, than fucking Ed Harris, one of the most serious actors imaginable to play this guy and like the self-importance that he's able to possess in all of these scenes. There's yeah. so many scenes of him just like walking through battlefields or shootouts in the streets where like everyone around him is dying and he just doesn't even flinch. He doesn't even like look back at anybody. He just keeps marching forward. That final monologue is I don't know if we should spoil but I'm just gonna go ahead and say the movie ends basically with like him becoming cannibalistic kind of just full-on losing his mind but after he swallows this guy's gallbladder he goes up on the podium and <laughs> and delivers this very intense monologue it's about an amazing how monologue how it's the God-given right of the American people to um, possess Nicaragua and that they're, yes. they're never going to be left alone. And he says, you all might think there is a day where America will not control Nicaragua, but it is our destiny to be here. It is our destiny to control you people. So no matter how hard you fight or what you think, we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. And it's said with his clear blue eyes and, yes. and stern face. And it's just like, oh, wow. And there's chaos around him. The thing about his army is they're just, they're so pathetic. 
pathetic. They're, They're really so stupid. Pathetic. Oh and my also, god. And also, like, this probably is what these guys were like at this time. They're probably oh, really oh, yeah. fucking dirty and ugly and dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, yep. I do love Richard Edson's uh, two scene cameo as um, the drummer who basically oh goes to him and is like, hey, like every time I like see like the drummer going and in, in, leading them into battle, um, he dies. And <laughs> I would really love to trade in my drum for a, a rifle if that's okay. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 you need to keep the drum. And then like, I love when it cuts to them going into Granada. He's the first one to get He's shot. The first one and he just gets the shot. worst death imaginable. He gets shot yep. like 15 times. <laughs> Yep. instantly dead the other thing i love is ed harris walker never gets shot and people no. shoot at him and they'll shoot at him and then they'll shoot at somebody else and to establish that they're not a bad shot they'll kill the somebody else continue shooting a walker but continue yeah. miss and it's like in these little moments you understand why he thinks he has like some divinity about him some god-given you know protection because he's somehow just unscathed through through all of these just horrific battles and just mass deaths. I never even know if he was shot or wounded at all because it's like, that's the other thing too, is that he narrates his own story, which is amazing because it's like right. this idea that he will always get the final word and men like this always get the final word in their legacy. So he's narrating his own story. So he's essentially an unreliable narrator. I yeah. kept thinking like this and the informant would be a great double feature and that like, it's just Ooh, these like really that. delusional, you know, kind of like inner monologues. I mean, there's so many lines he has like in in his narration that are like completely going against what you're witnessing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, basically this guy just, you know, believing that, you know, like all these guys believing that their cause is some sort of like a righteous cause. I love after that battle where Richard Edson is, is shot. One of the like locals runs into the street, like covered in blood and he's like crying and screaming. Oh, that's such and a great scene. At first you like kind of think he's, he's crying over his own people being shot and wounded. Right. And then he just shouts to the skies. He says, God protect these Americans who came here to help us. <laughs> God bless you, William Walker. <laughs> and there's like children crying in the background yes. and like babies screaming. It's, it's just incredible. Oh my God, insane. Yeah. He's also um, described by the president who he has executed. I think almost immediately, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, pretty much immediately. And what is her name? Is it it's the president's wife, correct? That he starts sleeping with? Yes, yeah, some yeah. sort of aristocrat, uh, you know, po political. Right. And when they see Woman. him coming into town, they're basically like, clearly this is no ordinary asshole. Right. And then when she first starts sleeping with him, she says, I have a weakness for small men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the the supporting characters in this and the supporting players are just all incredible. It's a great uh, cast. It's a it's, every face is amazing and and just feels so, so accurate. There's no like other really big names outside of like I guess Peter Boyle and, and Marley Matlin. Yeah. I would say that's about it. Well, what's his name? Xander Berkeley, who's one of his guys. Xander Berkeley is in a bunch of shit, but he's also, I think famously, I always think of him as the guy who's fucking uh, Pacino's wife in Heat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I cannot remember the guy's name, but he's like, you can't watch my fucking TV. He's that guy. That's okay. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That's who he is. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you mentioning Vanderbilt. When he gets introduced, there's no flies that you can see, but there is a, a very loud buzzing, buzzing around yeah. him. Yes. <laughs> indicating some sort of rottenness. The way that, that he is framed, it's almost like he expands to the edges of the frame. Like his yes. feet, he's just such a gross, gluttonous creature that's like yeah. manipulating itself to take up more space face than they should yeah his face and that is just so so memorable i love that peter boyle yeah. also did this for free 
No way. I didn't know that. Okay. Apparently, wow. I don't know why he did. Well, they offered him the part and he turned it down and then they kept offering it to him. And then somehow it got to him finally just being like, I'll do it for free. Wow. I don't know if it was like because financing was falling through or what was going on. Cause I know Ed Harris like deferred a lot of his pay towards the production yeah. and became like very heavily involved in it and was like leading a lot of like the actors who played his men on these like really long hikes. Right. Um, like he would like lead them on these long, long fucking hikes. Yeah. I think immediately like when he arrived, he went on a 10 mile hike. Yes. It made them go on it. But yeah, like you said, the movie was, it was co-written. It was partially financed. It was produced. It was used with all local Nicaraguan crew. That really just shows you who Alex Cox is, is that, you know, he went in to shoot this film there and was like, easily could have shot this on the Universal backlot, but was like, no, we're going to shoot in Nicaragua. We're going to hire locals to be in our crew, to be in extras. So I think they provided something like 6,000 jobs or something like that throughout the production. And, yeah. and then even when they finished, he was like, no, I'm going to edit the movie here. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm not just going to shoot the movie, pack up and then leave. I'm going to finish it here. He didn't want to be another colonizer. Yeah, he said, I think we yeah. have kind of a duty not to just be the rich gringos and come down here and spend eight weeks and then disappear. And yeah, I, I don't know how many other filmmakers, you know, would have even like thought to do that. Because yeah, you're right. I don't know if there's a modern day equivalent. I guess like, maybe Boots Riley like doing a show on Amazon. And like, I, I I like Boots Riley as a person. I'm not a huge Sorry to Bother You fan, even though I really love the idea. I wish I liked the movie more. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you're you're doing a show through Amazon. You know, yeah, on one hand, it's like you can't really do an independent television series. Yeah, it's interesting to think that like, Amazon is doing like really, for the most part, like actually kind of interesting series. You can't help but feel like there's something sinister behind that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't think they're just doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. Oh, no, they are not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> but in the 2000s, we were hit with, I know like you're, what year were you born? 96. Oh, okay. I don't know why I thought it was later than that. Okay. So like you were probably you somewhat aware of then like the fucking just onslaught of movies that we got in the 2000s post 9-11 that were like basically Iraq set war films. Oh yeah. There was a period where it felt like one was coming out every month. You had movies like Rendition or Syriana and like Black none Hawk of them Down. were read. Well Black Hawk Down was right after 9-11 but it was shot before 9-11. Oh really? Okay I didn't was, know that. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay. And that's like an incredibly well made. Oh you know, love Black Hawk Down. You know I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I can't really comment on its politics but they're bad. Incre <laughs> yeah incredibly well <laughs> shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't imagine Ridley is. <laughs> but yeah, so like we had, you know, pretty terrible. And even the movies that were purporting to be like anti-war, liberal leaning films at that time were fucking awful. In fact, the best ones were probably the Peter Berg, like really jingoistic ones, because you were like, well, at least these are fucking well made. <laughs> right. I don't know what this guy is trying to say right now. It's probably really <laughs> awful. Um, but God, he can frame action or whatever Bay was doing at that time, which I guess would be the Transformers movies, technically. Yes. Well, no, Bad Boys 2 is technically the his first post 9-11 movie. And that That's probably right. is the definition of it ends in Guantanamo Bay. So it does. Yeah. It, it does end, <laughs> it does end with them driving a yellow Hummer over a bunch of uh, shanty houses in a poor Cuban neighborhood. Right. Something only Bay could could conjure. Um yeah, I mean, but that's the thing is that like we don't really have interesting filmmakers like Alex Cox, at least in the mainstream right now. But it's funny because like guys like Bay 
kind of make the most interesting. I wouldn't say it's obviously not. I'm not, I'm not saying that Michael Bias by any means a fucking leftist filmmaker. Obviously, <laughs> I know that he is not that. But it seems like him and Clint Eastwood, two directors that I know you and I both like, they're written off as being ultra conservative filmmakers. And I think that's really simplistic. They've both kind of stumbled into, whether intentionally or not, really interesting anti-capitalist films like The Mule or Pain yeah. and Gain or Ambulance that are really actually some of the most like damning and accurate betrayals of the systems that we're living in now and that we're stuck with way more so than a lot of self-proclaimed leftist filmmakers. Very well put, yeah. It seems like that's almost the closest we can fucking get, which is really sad in its own way. It is. Um, But sometimes it is about the messenger, especially today, because especially people who are probably not even interested in hearing anything that could be considered leftist entertainment from like a Hollywood filmmaker. If it's coming from a guy like Michael Bay or Clint Eastwood or, or Zack Snyder or any of those guys, maybe that's the best way to get any type of message across, though, is to seemingly have no message, but at least make you consider what you're looking at. Right. Yeah. And I think in doing that on a gigantic studio budget, you know, slipping it under the radar is probably the best we can get right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, whatever the Wachowskis are allowed to make is probably going to come close, but who knows what the fuck they'll be allowed to make next. When Lorenzo O'Brien and Rudy Wurlitzer and I planned to do Walker, our original intention was to have it be a popular film. Uh, amazing as this may seem, we thought that it could have um, a wide popular appeal by containing violent action, sex, jokes, and that we might be able to create a film that was something like a subversive blazing saddles for the general audience. That was our, our desire. When Universal saw the film, Universal had financed it, uh, they decided that it wasn't a film for the broad general audience, it was a film for a minority audience. Um, an art film, uh, which can be the kiss of death to any film that doesn't have sufficient support and sufficient enthusiasm when it first opens. Um, an art film, an art film plays in a, uh, a handful of small cinemas and really depends on word of mouth uh, from the audience on that first weekend, um, but also depends on the critics, depends on good reviews, um, because that's how the audience finds its way to those movies. It's interesting to see how many critics, I think at the time, like really fucking hated this and really just fundamentally misunderstood it. I don't know if Roger Ebert ever came back to this movie. I hope he did. I don't, I don't, I don't think he ever wrote about it or assessed it publicly again, but no, it no, seems like he something he, he might've come around to later in life. He gave this movie an F. Siskel and Ebert at the time both really hated it. They both gave it an F. But Roger Ebert said some bad movies are in no hurry to announce themselves, but Walker declares its badness right from the opening titles. It seems like he really misunderstood a lot of what Cox was going for or just thought it was really silly, like you said. Yeah. But why can't a movie like this be silly? I don't know. And I also don't know how you could watch this at that time and be like, oh, it's just totally absurd and silly. You're you're watching. What's a Coca-Cola bottle doing there? That's weird. Right. It's like (laughs) you're watching this during the Contra War, like the Reagan administration. Obviously, it's very intentionally commenting on that in a way that might be absurd. But I don't know how you can just completely dismiss it as as just like silly you know nonsense you know especially at the time and and I think that's what's so puzzling about the critical reception is that it seemed pretty easily dismissed for its yeah. 
that's what's crazy too is like you know i think it's it's one thing to be like you know what i understand what he's going for i'm not crazy about it i don't really like the execution of it it's not quite what i i don't know whatever when we talked about oceans 12 last year i came across a really great steven soderbergh interview and he was like basically like listen i know a lot of people hate this movie but he's like i think it's a little unfair he's like i'm gonna like kind of toot my own horn a little bit here but like he's like look i think the movie looks really good I think like the acting is great. A lot of the technical aspects of this movie are really fantastic. I think it's unfair to give a movie like this an F or to completely write it off because, well, if you're an intelligent critic and you have some concept of the history of film, you're able to look at a film like this and be like, okay, well, I can acknowledge what works about this movie, but to completely write a film off that's this ambitious or strange or, or radical at that time is I think just lazy. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Like you have to at least evaluate the film on its level of what it's going for. For me, I'm like, if I went to go see a film and I just didn't understand what it was trying to do or go for, Mm -hmm. I would probably tell whoever I work for, like, you have to send someone else to write, write for this. I can't write for (laughs) it. Not even because like I I dislike it. It wouldn't be a problem with writing in a bad review or something, but it's more just like, I just don't understand this. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair for me to write about this. Like I read a lot of reviews. I read a lot of reviews over the course of doing this podcast where I'm like, it seems like this critic just fundamentally misunderstood what they were watching and didn't even bother to try to understand it. Gene Siskel um, said it's unquestionably one of the worst films of the year made even more shocking because it was directed by the often inventive Alex Cox. And then like Rita Kempley at the Washington Post said, it's a time warp spaghetti Western littered with meaningful mode debris, plastic flowers, classic Coke, even a general perusing the chatter column in People Magazine. This is just Cox's lame way of linking the ugly Americans of yesteryear with the ugly Americans of today. It's as gross as it is muddled as it is absurd. Interesting. Okay, so it's like, okay, well, you understand what the movie is, but then... I do not think it's muddled. No, I think not it's at all. very crystal clear. It's, it's, yeah. it's strange, but it's crystal clear. I will say it's it can be unpleasant to watch at times. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can even be a little obnoxious in its own way, but I think that's also part of it. Like Inherent Vice is a movie that also is something where he talked about being, you know, inspired by like Zucker Brothers movies and things like that and wanting to make something like a little wackier mm-hmm. out of something that obviously has a lot more sadness and melancholy under the surface to it. And I think that's what makes it one of his most rewatchable movies is that you can kind of keep coming back to it. Because that was a movie I didn't really love the first time I saw it. And then every time I watched it, I fell more and more in love with it. But I remember the time like having a hard time with the tone. Also, I waited in line for fucking three hours to see it and had the most obnoxious <laughs> guy standing behind me in line um, being like, okay, what's your top five PTA? So <laughs> I think that kind of, um, by the time I sat down to watch it at like fucking midnight, I was like, okay. Right, right. Great. <laughs> so that probably also made it worse but yeah i think it's like those are the movies that you come back to the most the ones that they're maybe not technically perfect as we talked about last week in our nicholas rogue episode where like he made a movie eureka that is far from perfect it's very strange and it kind of goes off course by the end of it but it's filled with so many insane ideas and and just just the most gorgeous imagery i would just keep thinking about it and I feel mm-hmm. like those are the movies that you kind of can go back to the most, the most imperfect, ambitious, flawed movies. Right. I think there's a lot to uncover and just discover in something that's not perfect. And and as kinks or, or dense of, you know, saying like, why would you do that? Uncovering those reasons can be much more interesting than going, oh, well, everything was perfect, you know? Yeah, exactly. This is one of those movies that has a lot of tonal, like 
jarring moments that um I come back to and I'm like I would have never thought to do that or you know do it this way and especially when you look at it from like a creative standpoint of whether you're like a writer or a filmmaker where you're like you're sometimes you want to see things where you're like I would have never thought to do that or like I want to know how they got to that place or what made them decide to do that in some ways you want to be surprised by something Mm -hmm. you know it's exciting to watch somebody else had brought up in a in a because there were positive reviews for it obviously um a lot of them were kind of more recent reviews but someone had brought up like barry linden which was also a really great reference of this because i remember the first time i watched barry linden like growing up i just thought it was a costume drama and then right. watching it, I'm like, oh, this is like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> fucking just like the biggest fucking loser, just failing yep. upwards. It's amazing. It's incredible. Someone at the time who did like it, that was Vincent Canby, the New York Times. He gave it a good review. He said, Walker's witty rather than laugh out loud funny. Without being solemn, it's deadly serious. Walker is something very rare in American movies these days. It has some nerve. I like that. There you go. It's true. It's true to this day. It is true. Yeah, a lot of people just said, you know, kind of in hindsight, it seems like a lot of the fierce detractors must have been so disgusted that they weren't even willing to concede its strokes of genius. I don't know if it would have gotten proper release, if it would have found somewhat of a wider audience. I know it was kind of, it was pretty much hard to find for the 20 years in between it coming out and the Criterion release in 2008. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm almost certain like Universal just buried the shit out of it. It's yeah. it's it sounds like a movie that would have been stuck in like post production hell. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that they shot it in March and April of 1987, and it came out in December of that year. Yeah, that's a good Clint schedule. Yeah, that's a good uh, good turnaround there. Yeah, so I was like, well, clearly, like he had he knew what he was doing. It came together very quickly. I love yeah. he talked about. Let me see if I can pull up the quote. It was a really great quote. Oh yeah. So he was asked, did you, did Universal try to interfere with the films, with the film in terms of like editing or changing anything? And he said, what I've tried to do in my filmmaking career has been to make short films around 85 minutes in length, with the exception of Sid and Nancy, which is just too long. If you make a film that is going to be short, it's very hard for the distributor to mess it up. If you make one that is two and a half or three hours long, you know, you're going to, you're going to get screwed and it'll be like Sergio Leone and Once Upon a Time in the West. They'll take it. They'll cut it down to 80 minutes anyway. If you just make it 80 minutes, they can't really mess with it. (laughs) Which is That's, a really great point. It's like, yeah, just make a short movie. Like it's true. And watching <laughs> watching Walker last night, I was watching it with somebody and they were kind of like trying to chit-chat. And I was like, no, there's no room for that in this movie. It's it's nonstop from the moment yeah. the, the credits hit, it's not gonna let you go. And it's it goes by quickly. Yeah, there's not a moment of downtime. Oh, it's tight and yeah. edited really well. I love that philosophy. That's great. It's really great. I never even like thought about it that way, but I was like, wow, it is great. And listen, I I'm, a, I'm all for a, a fucking long movie. Oh, yeah, of course. Comfort, absolutely. Yeah. But I also am totally fine with much shorter movies these days because it seems like we're having kind of a problem making movies under two hours these days. Uh, um, yeah, good <laughs> Lord. And there are some yeah. people that just cannot fill that time. Like, don't try oh. like a 90-minute film. It's okay. I think a lot of the times it seems like it's for plot exposition because oh, people yeah. are so used to being told what everything is at this point that we're not really like giving anybody any room to just... I don't know. Form their own. Yeah, form their own thoughts or experience something. So I guess the only, because you're, you're, I forget. Yeah, I think like Courtney, you're one of the big Oliver Stone haters, right? Oh. I'm not a fan. I do love JFK though. I do think JFK is really great. JFK is fun. It's it's goofy. It's fun. Yeah. I was going to say, I think JFK is probably the only other movie at this time that I can remember that like a major studio made where it's like, that's pretty crazy that 
Yeah, that's true. Um, the and then I, I did you ever see Blonde? The Andrew Dominic? I, 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 I did not. I yeah, yeah. avoided it. No, I know. I you know, look, I'm I'm mixed on it. I, I whatever, but um, I, I I will say I was like by the end of it, I was like, you know what? Props for making a movie where you posited that the JFK and Marilyn Monroe killed. Why not? There you okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm surprised Netflix was cool with that. They were like, yeah, just do it. Yeah, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to touch on on Walker? It's packed with so much shit, and there's it's so many. Amazing quotes in it too. Yeah. Um, God protect these Americans who came here to help us. Though is is just so good. Oh, I love when she's yelling at him and the when the woman's yelling at him in Spanish and he doesn't understand her and then he like says something. He's like, she called me a name. What did she call me? Like that's all he's stuck on. He's oh yeah. Like, what did you say? <laughs> I don't know. He's an optimist turned into an obsessive. And the dialogue of that in particular is just like so interesting. He's completely removed from reality. Yeah. And I think the the film does a good job of kind of creating or showing through his narration and mindset that he has kind of like this bubble around him of, I guess, protection and and there's a bunch of very dumb yes men around him yes who yes also were, i mean at times they're like hey maybe you shouldn't do that right like when but, he's going to execute the president in the streets and they're like yeah. hey maybe don't do that one you think he's going to have like a moment of clarity where he's like we're not going to execute him at sundown tomorrow and they're like thank god and he's like we're going to execute him today in the <laughs> afternoon so <laughs> God. And then I love that he has like a Daniel Plainview thing where like he has two brothers that show up. They're like, well, your brothers. God. Yeah. He shoots his brother and he says, what? Mama, ne Mama never liked you anyway. I think that's <laughs> what he says. This is totally cheesy, but I was going to look up what I wrote on Letterboxd. Let's see. Because I did like what I wrote. Hold on, I feel see. like you did say something about like if it was. Okay. So what I did say was it's anti-colonizer Caravaggio by way of Sucker Brothers. Yes. So I, I know that sometimes reviews like that, the David Ehrlich school of. Of, of critical thought right but sometimes it it's works pretty, and that, and that's, spot on. I'm i sorry. think that's very spot on no listen yeah. hey listen. <laughs> give yourself credit where it's due okay no that's extremely spot on it's hard to say who the mvp of this movie is between i mean i i gotta just say it's alex cox because it's his vision and it's everything that came together from him i, I think it obviously on on screen though ed harris is just so perfect yeah unbeatable i mean one of one of his top five performances for me maybe that's one i don't know he's just i'm trying to think because he's a guy who's usually really consistent like i'm trying to think of a time where i'm like ed harris just didn't work in this for me he's a great team player i always love him showing up in anything i'm like oh ed harris great yeah the last thing i saw him in where he really i just think he's incredible his mother mother in the Aronoff. in the Aronoff. because he's the guy who shows up at their house with michelle pfeiffer Oh my god! And, and he's like, he's like, I'm a huge fan of your writing, and he won't I, leave their house, and he's just like smoking cigarettes all the time. And like, I buried that house. movie. And he's like, okay. Down. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm That's sure. So funny. I remember watching that, and I just like was like leaving the theater, like I'm gonna purposely forget this now. I am a fan of the movie, but I understand why anybody hates it. I would say just rewatch some scenes with Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer because they're incredible okay. in it. Every scene, he's just like coughing and just like it's okay, I'm fine. <laughs> Chain totally smoking in their house, that. and she's like, please smoke outside, and he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, I'm going, lady. <laughs> he's so oh fucking God. funny in it. And then he's in Pain and Gain. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. I've never seen Pollock. I've never seen that either, actually. My parents are a big fan of that movie. I need to watch it. He's great in The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. You know, I've never seen is The Abyss. 
I should see the abyss. Also, never seen that one. I haven't seen. I think it's unavailable, which is weird. I don't know what the. I know there are like two versions or whatever, okay. like two yeah, different yeah, yeah, endings. Yeah. Damn! Uh, now I kind of want to watch that with recent uh, news events. I know, right? <laughs> Perfect. And then, of course, in history of violence. Oh yeah. You Joey Cusack. <laughs> <laughs> Philly. Uh, no, he's he's fantastic in this. But this, I, yeah, this might be my favorite performance of his, honestly. But tr- truly just one of the best, just kind of like under the radar actors we have. Yep. He always knows how to just integrate himself into whatever he's in. And I know that we both agree this isn't an auteur misfire. Even yep. if it ended his, effectively ended Alex Cox's mainstream career. Yes. Oh, God. Such a tragedy. But Was you know it? what? He went out his own way, I think. I think he did. I, I'm very curious to know more about this fear and loathing thing about because that's 10 years after this. I'm yeah, like I have curious. no idea about that. That's that's bizarre that they would they would be like, hey, come on back. Let's I know. Let's yeah, again. we buried two of your movies. We kind of blacklisted you, but like, would you want to do this? Um, I, maybe Johnny Depp was a fan and was like, "Hey, you should get Alex Cox or something." But maybe. anything is better than Terry Gilliam, though. Ain't that the truth? I say that as somebody who hasn't seen like Brazil or or Brazil's uh, good. Fisher King. Brazil's I should good. see Brazil, and I'd like to see the Fisher King. But I mean, Fear of Loathing has fun stuff in it. It's just it's a just exhausting. annoying. It has a great Benicio performance, though. What doesn't have a great Benicio performance? Yeah, yeah. Um, He's also very consistent. Walker is not streaming anywhere at the moment. Um, I, I'm not sure if you can rent it. Um, you cannot. You cannot. Okay, there you go. So you can use a little VPN if you want to torn it. You can be like me and, and pick up the Criterion Blu-ray, which has a, a lot of really fantastic extras. I'm sure it'll pop up on the Criterion channel again at some point. It's really great. It's definitely, if you're if you're just doing some blind buys on one of their sales, Can't miss. Walker. But you can watch some of his other movies streaming. I would definitely recommend. If you haven't seen Repo Man, see it. Olivia, maybe give it another shot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, give it another, another shot. shot. Yeah, another why shot. not? And I would recommend Highway Patrolman on Canopy. If you're a huge Joe Strummer fan and you really want to see him in a leading role, you could watch Straight to Hell. But anyway, yeah, next week we're going to be jumping into a whole new month of auteur misfires. We're going to be kicking it off with John Frankenheimer and Hal Ashby. We'll be discussing two of their later, very sleazy, very coke-fueled uh, crime movies from the 80s. We'll be talking about 52 Pickup, starring Roy Schreider, and 8 Million Ways to Die, Hal Ashby's final movie. A movie that you probably would never have guessed that Hal Ashby directed it, uh, starring Jeff Bridges, Andy Garcia with a ponytail, and Roseanne Arquette. Real, real skeezy movie. We'll also be discussing Alan J. Bakula, Steven Spielberg, Tim Burton. He's an auteur? Listen, for better, or, for better or worse, he's an auteur. We're talking about one of the good ones. We're talking about Mars Attacks. We're not talking about like Dark Shadows or some shit. Um, listen, Tim Burton, I have to always, I'll always have a soft spot for because those were like the first movies I was into. Were, like, of course, movies, yeah. Sa- I mean, same. And Ed Wood's amazing. He is an auteur for better or worse. I'm missing somebody else. Oh my God, who am I missing that we're going to be talking? Oh God, how can I miss? We're going to be talking about John Woo and oh. Clint Eastwood. Damn. Come on. And then we're going to have our bonus episode that's going to be coming out on The Witches of Eastwick and Mike Nichols' Wolf, a little weird, horny Jack Nicholson double feature of barely fresh movies. So stay tuned for those. Olivia, where, where can people find you? I know um, you've told people before, but... I have, but I'll just I'll reassure them. Do it again. That, reassure that, them, please, <laughs> so they can write it down this time. You can uh, find me um, on Instagram at littlebirdlive, no E, just live like Olivia, my name. And from there on to other things. And if you're in Chicago, please come to a Chicago Film Society screening. And I'm going to be presenting the 
porn version of Westworld called Sex World on August 13th. Is that Harris in it? He is not, unfortunately. You're goddamn right I am. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when did, that, when did that come out? Uh, 78. Okay, so it's for the movie. It's not for the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine it uh, would be better. No, it's, yeah, it's 70s. <laughs> okay. I will be presenting that at the Music Box August 13th. And if you want a little discount on tickets, you can use the discount code LIVE, L-I-V-10. There you go. I don't know how many listeners we have in Chicago, but please, if you're, please if you're there. Go yeah. check it out. I, I know our, our our podcast regular Andrew Jacobson uh, was out there. He was, and I, I was missed him. I, yeah. I meant to go see. He was presenting his own film. I heard at it's the exciting. music box, and yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't. I did not get a chance to to go. Unfortunately, it sounds like a beautiful theater too. It's gorgeous. I gotta I gotta get out there. Thank you so much for coming back on, and thanks for yeah. for being my 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 essential co-host today. <laughs> of course, yes, we miss Courtney. Thank you for listening. If you are listening on Patreon, we cannot thank you enough for your monthly contributions. If you are not on Patreon and you are listening to us on Apple or Spotify or one of your other regular podcast apps, please make sure to rate and review, tell your friends, subscribe. And if you are not on Patreon and you are interested in subscribing, you can head over to our page at patreon.com and you can subscribe for as low as $3 a month. You'll get exclusive early access to episodes. You can subscribe to higher tiers for bonus episodes, all those fun things. And if you are one of our top subscribers, we just want to give you a very special thank you. We cannot do this without you. So very special thank you to Royce Burke, Victoria Kruger, Andrea Ferris, ASR, Ben Beakey, Devin Hansen, Arrow, Sayino, Jean Yonarell, Britton Chance, Constant, Carino, Graham Redmond, Neil Fuller, Matthew Hayes, Alex Culpin, Brittany Barker, Brody Anderson, Connor Duran, Eric Hockman, Jade Yankowski, Madeline Dugan, Mary Caitlin Koiski, Nick Laskin, and Ryan Oliver. Thank you so very much. And we will see you next week as we kick off a brand new month of Autour Misfires. Misfires.